Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And I'll read verses 1 through 12, but we'll be focused on 9 through 12. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would illumine our hearts and our minds so that we would understand and believe and obey your word. Pray that you would sanctify us through the preaching of your word, that we would be convicted in our hearts and that that conviction would lead to true obedience by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the book of Colossians is a book where Paul spends the whole letter teaching this, Christ alone is sufficient. He's he's battling false teachers and his one, the one thing I think he keeps coming back to is Christ alone. Christ alone is sufficient. Calvin's summary of Colossians is this, the principal object at which Paul aims to teach that all things are in Christ and that he alone ought to be reckoned amply sufficient by the Colossians. He's enough. That's all that you need. Christ is God and Christ is sufficient and you don't need anything else. Um, In times past, in ages past, it could have been Jesus plus knowledge or Jesus plus philosophy or Jesus plus angels, or Jesus plus the harsh treatment of the body, asceticism. Um, today, it's, it's Jesus plus don't tell me what to do. It's Jesus plus sexual anarchy. It's Jesus plus I want to feel what I'm going to feel. 
Um, it's not very thoughtful. It's more sensual what we add to Jesus. Um, to you and I, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, must be honored above everything else. Um, he must be worshipped as the preeminent one, the first, the, the all-sufficient Savior who not only needs no supplement, he doesn't need any helps, but who requires that he be looked to alone as the sole source of authority. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There are other authorities, right? We have other authorities, but they are all delegated authorities from the one authority, Jesus Christ. That's the Christian faith. That's the Christian faith. We're not embarrassed by the fact that someone may say hey, they have Trump as president. Well, we say we have Jesus as king. He is our king. There are others, there are, you know, other lesser authorities, but all those are delegated authorities from Jesus who has all authority. There are other lesser roles for, for those lesser authorities, for, for science, for philosophy, for homeschooling, for environmental stewardship, um, for angels. All of these lesser authorities should be in the service, though, of praising King Jesus of proclaiming Him the Lord of lords, of pointing to Him as the one by whom and through whom all things were created. And so this letter to the Colossians should help us give Jesus, the Son of God, first place in everything. If the above you know, captures the essence of the letter, that He is urging them that Jesus alone is sufficient, then we would expect the report of what the Apostle Paul is praying for them would have that same focus, right? He says he's praying for them. Paul prayed for the churches that he planted. He prayed for the individuals of the church that he planted. He was, he was a man of prayer, and that is one of the things that perhaps we don't think about much when it comes to the Apostle Paul. Um, we think of him as a, a bold preacher. We think of him as an apostle, but... He was a prayer. And so we would expect that Paul would be praying in such a way that the truth of Jesus Christ as the sufficient one, the one who demands our undivided allegiance, would be demonstrated in the faith of the Colossians. We would expect that when he prayed for the Colossians, he would be praying that they would understand who Jesus is, and then in understanding who Jesus is, what response they should have to that Jesus. And indeed, that is exactly what we find in these verses. We read earlier, Paul tells the Colossians he's been praying for them. Since Paul first heard that there was a church, that there were believers in Colossae, he says he has not ceased to pray for them and to ask, that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul wants them to grow in the Lord. Paul's praying that they grow and understand more of Jesus. Paul tells them he's had them in his prayers and that his specific prayer since he talked with their pastor, who's Epaphras, has been what they would be, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of his will. 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The assumption is, of course, that they have a way to go. Right? That there is room for significant growth, that he has expectations that God is going to be at work in them. They haven't arrived, right? Trinity Presbyterian Church has not arrived, right? The pastor of Trinity has especially a long way to go. And we need that encouragement. We need the prayers. We need the encouragement to grow. Now, what does this mean to be, to be filled with the knowledge of his will? That's pretty abstract, isn't it? To be filled with the knowledge of his will. Um, seems like an extraordinary thing to possess also, doesn't it? To be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The very thing the Colossian Christians were struggling with, it seemed, was that some dude was coming into their church and was telling them that he had a special knowledge of God's will. Right? And it included, it included things like, you've got to worship angels. There's a lot to be gained in your spiritual life from worshiping angels. Mysticism, right? And, and he said a dose of the philosophies of man needs to come alongside Jesus, and then Jesus will make more sense if you have those, those, um, that intellectualism. And so you, you, you'll come to know the knowledge of God's will and, uh, and you do it by adding these things next to it. And the letter goes on to warn the Colossians against such additions and teaches them that Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone is sufficient. But here in our passage this morning, we get the fundamental goal of the Apostle Paul in his prayer for them, right? That they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That should be the, the, the goal of every Christian, right? To know God's will. To know God's will. What would God have for you? What has God commanded you? What, what is God's future for you? What is his will for you? What, what, what is his will for you in the next five minutes? What is his will for you in the next five years? What is his will for you in, in eternity? Right? There are many false prophets whose object is the same. The false prophet especially proclaims that what he has is knowledge from God. Right? Special knowledge. Knowledge that leads to spiritual satisfaction and enlightenment and and salvation, but the message of the false prophets, remember, it's very simple. The message of the false prophets is the very opposite of God's will. The very opposite of God's will. In the Colossian situation, the false prophet was saying, worship angels. They'll help you out if you do, right? But that is in direct opposition to God's revealed will in his word, in his word which is worship me alone, right? We see the, the apostle John fall before the angel in the book of Revelation and, and, uh, and worship and, and the angel's like, eh, get up, don't do that. Worship God. He says. And so, um, what do the false prophets of our culture say to us? What, what, what are people trying to bring alongside Jesus for you? Um, what do they ask us to take as a knowledge of God's will? Well, the false prophets of our culture, from our, you know, all of our authorities, from politicians to professors to pundits to 
teenagers on Facebook, right? Our, our Facebook philosophers, our Facebook gurus, our Twitter tweeters, to our television commercials, all of these have tenants that they're teaching. Here are a few, that life without sex is not worth living. Right? Jesus plus sex. That the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. Right? Jesus, but not so much Jesus that he makes absolute claims. Right? Um, that That what we feel individually is what is true. Right? Jesus plus your imagination, your feelings, you know, your emotional stimulation after not getting enough sleep. Those things are, are to be looked into, to understood and followed. Um, here's another, that any claim to know God's will is intolerant and therefore loveless. Any, anybody who claims to know God's will, even though God has revealed his will, here in the scriptures, is intolerant and therefore loveless. So you can have Jesus, but just, you know, don't talk to me about the inerrancy and authority of of God's word. Jesus plus, you know, a soft view of scripture. And we could add more tenets of our modern religion, all of which when we become Christian, really are a part of our cultural DNA, all of which is why we have to grow in the Lord and be conformed to Christ and, and, and that this prayer of Paul's is still in play for us today because we have to go about cleansing ourselves from all of this garbage that we've tried to set aside, set beside Jesus as some other authority. So Paul prays that they would be filled you see, as a, as a cup is filled, filled to the brim, nothing else can go into the cup, right? Once it gets to the top, it's full, right? Nothing else goes in there. You can't squeeze anything else in that cup. And as we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, there will be no room for these other vain, godless philosophies to be squeezed out. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will makes us deaf to the false prophets around us. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will means we are completely gripped by God's will. Focused on it, living in it, engaged in it. One can know much of God, much of the church, much of the scriptures, but not be dominated by it. That's why Paul prays that they would be filled. That they would just, they would... They would not have a thought that isn't dominated by the will of God. Now, if someone had to answer this question about me, what dominates Andrew? What dominates Andrew? You know, and I'm not going to open up the floor for answers to that this morning. I'm just not strong enough for that right now. Um, what characterizes Andrew? What seems to fill him? What, what, what is he placed alongside Jesus as an alternate authority? You know, I fear that the answer would not be good, but ask yourself the same question. Would someone else say of you, oh, he's dominated by the knowledge of the will of God? He's dominated by that knowledge. He's, he's, 
He has scripture pouring forth from his orifices. Right? Or would it be something else? Would it be something else that dominates you? Would it, would it simply, you know, you're, you're dominated by, by things like, I've got to be productive. I've got to produce. And worship is not productive in your eyes. Right? So you've got to produce. You've got to work. Would it be business success? Would it be the pursuit of, of what's cool? and trendy? Would it be to be respectable? Right? Would it be to the life of the mind? Would it be to read books? Would it be to be entertained, to be in a relationship, to make money, to talk and talk and talk and talk and just talk and talk and talk some more and talk, 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 talk all the time? Or would it be to be comfortable? Right? Would it be to be free of debt? Does that occupy? Does that dominate your thoughts? All these things, all those things can dominate us, right? Some of those things dominate you now, but one thing should dominate us. One thing should dominate us, and that's to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Filled with the knowledge of God's will. To, to be filled means to be totally controlled by it. Totally controlled by the will of God. And so, you know, whatever fills us, that's what controls us. Fear, anxiety, um, just, just wanting to laugh. Some people just want, that's what they want their whole life to be, is laughter. Um, but Paul here says that, no, Colossians, you need to be dominated by something and that's the knowledge of God's will. The goal is then to be dominated, to be filled to the increasing exclusion of other distractions by a knowledge of God's will. Hosea 4.6 says this, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We don't know the Lord. We're not dominated by thoughts of God Almighty. And so the church is destroyed. So what is God's will? Where do we learn what God would have us do? Where do we learn God's thoughts? What, what do we learn, you know, or where do we learn what to believe and how to respond to those truths with faith? Now, it's not simply out of the imaginations of your brain. It's not out of thin air. It's not from, um, it's not from our culture, right? We gain a knowledge of God's will in the book that he has written for us. Right? Paul, later in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 16, writes, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of God, the word of Christ, let it richly dwell within you, in your heart. If you want to know God's will, study his word. If you want to know how to live for God, study his word. If you want to know what's good and right and beautiful and true, study his word. Indeed, for every question that comes up in life, Whatever it may be, where to go for college, you know, when to retire, how to spend money, um, how to love your wife or your husband, what time to go to bed, whether to turn right or left, study his word. Study his word. 
2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's not ordinary stuff here, right? This is Holy Spirit authored. This is breathed out by God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ouch! That's a sharp knife. That's a deep cutting knife. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says all Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so if that's true, if that's what the Word of God is, how could you possibly have not read the Word of God last week? How could you possibly have gone the past six months without once cracking the Bible at home? How is that even possible? I mean, it's the knowledge, it's God's will written for you. And yet it's so easy for us to to neglect it, to just move on from it, uh, and then to justify or neglect saying, I don't really understand it. Well, you haven't prayed that God give you understanding because you haven't read. So why would there be reason to pray that God would give you understanding? Next question our passage this morning answers is this. What will be the result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? What's the result of that being filled? The reason follows in verses 10 through 12, indicated by those words, so that... We are to be filled with this particular knowledge of God's will and of God's word so that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Man, that's boring stuff. Isn't it? Blah. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing if we had one half of a dose of one of these things on this list, it would, it would occupy our minds for ages upon ages. Knowing God's will will lead to a certain kind of life, a certain kind of life that is dominated by certain things, that were someone to look at it, they would describe it as a life filled with the knowledge of God. A life that leads to one, walking in a manner worthy of Jesus, pleasing God in all respects. Three, the bearing of fruit. Four, increasing even more in knowledge. Five, being strengthened with His power. Six, attaining steadfastness and patience. And then seventh, joyously giving thanks to the Father. You're depressed. You're not giving thanks to the Father. 
Just even to give thanks would mean you'd have to snap out of your depressive shell. In even shorter form, it would be this. A life lived for obedience, fruitfulness, understanding, strength, perseverance, and thanksgiving. Think of that. A life lived that way is a life filled with the knowledge of God's will, isn't it? Notice that verse 10 starts with those two little words, so that. Apostle Paul tells them he's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that the other things he's about to mention would be in evidence, would be visible, would be real, would come to fruition in their lives. He's asking God to do something, and that's something that God does will have this tangible effect. Now, we can't blow by this too quickly. What we, what we learn from these verses is that God's work will have an effect in our lives. Now, do you believe that? It's hard to believe that at times, isn't it? Because it's, it's, you're struggling with the same sins you've struggled with for ages. You, you, you're still, you're still down about this or that. You wake up in the morning depressed and go to bed at night depressed. You think about the way that you didn't shepherd your children that day. You think about the fact that you didn't do it the last 30 days of the month. And there's all of this, there's all of these weights on you. And yet, here, God's word is saying that God's work is powerful. God's work produces fruit. God's work changes us. So often, people's so that's get confused. On the one hand, there are those we would call, um, when, it, when it comes to responding to God's word, responding to God's laws, responding to God's exhortations, there are those who are antinomian in the way they approach things. There are people in our churches who have no so that's, Right? They believe not so that they may produce fruit or so that they may become obedient. They say that they know Jesus, they know God's will for themselves, but it doesn't really show up in their lives. They, for them, Christianity is just insurance. It's a good insurance policy. For them, Christianity is for Sunday morning. Some people know them as Christians and others know them as not Christians. Right, the life of the party, perhaps. This type of person is saved from good works and saved from a life of holiness. On the other hand, there are those we would call legalists. There are many in our churches whose lives are chock full of those so that's. Right? They say they know Jesus, they know God's will for themselves, but they love their so that's more than they love Jesus. Right? For, for them, Christianity is demonstrating certain behaviors. For them, Christianity is a culture. Some people know them as Christians and other, others know them as crusaders for abstinence or smoking bans or baptism and pedo-communion. This type of person is saved by their works, by a life of holiness rather than for a life of holiness. Both types 
The antinomian and the legalists are confused. Both types are in a very dangerous place and one that doesn't have the support of Scripture. The antinomian has no so-that's, no manifestation at all of fruit. The legalist has made his so-that's the ground of his salvation. In both cases, there's no real understanding of Jesus and the work of Jesus and how we are saved by him. In both cases, there's no conversion, there's no birth, There's no new birth. There's no regenerating power on display. And now remember what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The fruit of a person who has been converted by God will be much different than the fruit of a person (laughs) who has been born again. Right? Remember Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. When God makes something new, it produces fruit. But where there is not something new, nothing new will be there. There will not be a life filled with the knowledge of God's will. The word of God will not manifest itself in that person's life. In fact, those who are not converted, those who are not filled with the knowledge of God's will, as the Apostle Paul has been praying to God for the Colossians, they will get their so-that's all mixed up, as I said before. And those who are not converted will go the two ways I mentioned before. The antinomian will say, who cares how I live? And the legalists will say, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. Right? Both have, don't have the right place for their so-that's. Now again, what do I mean by that? The antinomian is easy. He has no evidence of faith in his life. There are no so that's just just Jesus and my appetites. That's what the antinomian is. Jesus plus appetites. Jesus and whatever I determine to do. Jesus plus my will be done. The legalist, on the other hand, is a bit more complicated. Because at the very least, the legalist does seem to demonstrate some holiness of life. Right? Indeed, perhaps a great deal. How, how does the legalist get his so-that's messed up? He puts the cart before the horse. All the so-that's, the evidences of conversion, the evidence of God's work are the very thing he's trusting in for his salvation. The one who trusts in sacraments, the one who trusts in his upbringing, right? or his church membership, we're founding members of so-and-so, or his, his self-defined standards of holiness. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't vote democratic. That person is trusting in things that don't save. He has made what can only be evidence of conversion into his salvation. This is the sickness of legalism. It has the appearance of godliness, but actually denies the power. So for the truly born-again Christian participating in the sacraments, regularly attending the worship of God, to sit under the preaching of God's word, pursuing holiness in a whole host of very vigorous ways and many of the same ways that the legalist would go. These things are the fruit of saving faith in Jesus Christ, the evidence of God's work, the joyful response to God's grace. It's the result of God's action, the very work of God himself. They are the so that's of the salvation of God. 
To the legalist, on the other hand, participating in the sacraments is their salvation. Their church membership is their salvation. The success at meetings, um, meeting their their self-defined standards of holiness is their salvation. All these things they do are not the so that so that's that flow from the salvation of God, but they are the things that earn them their very salvation. So, as God fills those who have been converted with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, there necessarily follows from that certain things. One does not live however one pleases. Whether that be in the style of the antinomian or in the style of the legalist. And I'm not here, you know, to be academic and give you an, a, a lecture on different isms. Um, I'm here to cause you to examine yourself. Which are you? Which side do you tend more toward? Are you dismissive or rigid? Dismissive of holiness, rigid in your two tiny rules. Are you the live however you want guy? Are you the trust in your standards guy? Or are you born again? Is God filling you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Do you have any so that's evident in your life? Do you think you are saved by meeting your own standards? Do you know Jesus so that you fear him and yet delight when he commands you? Right? Or do you just disregard him? Have you set really really low standards of righteousness for yourself of your own choosing. Right? I would never buy a Toyota. And I look down on those who would buy a Toyota. Right? That's like the standards of the legalists. They're so minuscule. But they keep them with such tight rigor. Right? Don't smoke. So easy to do that. Don't dance. Fine. Not so hard. Just don't go to certain places on a Friday night. If, you know, if you are the antinomian, come to Jesus. Right? If you're the legalist, come to Jesus. Uh, trust in Him for your salvation. Right? And when we come to Jesus and we leave behind the old way of life and leave behind our old standards for life, when God is doing the work of filling us with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we can have, we can have a radically altered life. He does this work. He does this work. I just think we're, we're all defeatists in the Christian church today. We just don't think God works. We think we will always remain where we are. We're always going to wake up and be, and be a bad father because we're thinking about how we're a bad father. And it's just going to stay there. And then I'm, every once in a while I'm going to have a pity party for myself about it and confess the pity party to God, but then just stay where I'm at. Right? We really don't think that God works in our lives. We we don't think that there's a radical art altering in our lives. Um, but he does this work so that we would, one, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the promise of Scripture. 
Walk speaks to the manner of life, the the main characteristic. When you walk in something, that means that that's what characterizes you. Holiness of life follows from God's filling necessarily. Calvin says we must above all things take heed that we regulate our whole course of life according to the will of God, renouncing our own understanding and bidding farewell to all the inclinations of the flesh. Bye and move on in the power of God. Basically, knowing God's words so that you may live a life in subjection to God, make progress in the doctrine of piety until death. Right? Two, we learn that we'll be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. I mean, think about that phrase again. We're going to be strengthened with all power according to his power for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Those two things you lack, patience and the ability to stick to something. That's where the power of God is manifested. The Christian has power. The Christian has power. No defeatist attitudes here. To say there is no power is to deny his power. Paul has prayed that they would know God's will so that they would be strengthened with all power, and that power is according to his glorious might. It's power for a purpose, to attain steadfastness, be immovable and patience, endurance when temptations come and when difficulties come and when a cross comes that you have to bear. You will have courage and consistency. And then three, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Giving thanks to the Father because he's written the check for us. Thanksgiving when contemplating that which is to come, a mind set on things above, not on the things of the earth. So as God works within us, as we are filled with the knowledge of his will, our so that's our holiness of life and power against our lust and courage and perseverance through the crosses that come to us for our good and joyful thanksgiving in contemplating our future, our inheritance which is laid up in heaven. Holiness, power, and joy. Holiness, power, and joy. Got much of those things lately? Holiness, power, and joy. That's the life of the Christian. Or the Holy Spirit is lying to us in this passage. Or the Holy Spirit doesn't lie and cannot lie. And so as we come to a knowledge of God's will, a real, wholesome, spirit-wrought understanding, our lives will be marked with holiness, power, and joy. Not unholiness. Not constant weakness. And not hopeless depressing grumbling. It's not those things. Your flesh and the devil and the world are producing those things in you, but not God. When God's power is at work in us, when we are filled with the knowledge of his will, then holiness, power, and joy, ever increasing, ever deepening, ever deepening, will lead to the praise of God's glory. God has his purpose in it. God has his own glory in it. He has his own glory in it, and he will produce 
holy, powerful, and joyful people to His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have cut us this morning with Your Word. That you have shown us that the fruit of the Spirit is radically different than the lack of fruit that we see in our lives. And Father, we thank you that you are long-suffering and patient with your children. That you do, you do, as a good father, shepherd your people. And so, Father, insofar as we have not been filled with the knowledge of your will, Father, we pray that you would continue that work that you've begun. And I pray in filling it that we would see the ability to put to death sins that have afflicted us for so long. Father, to take even thoughts captive. Father, to, 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 be, um, to be what we never thought we would be but to be that by the power of the Spirit, I pray that we would be filled with thanksgiving, that we could care less about the weight of life and the difficulties and the crosses because we know, Father, that you have removed the worst burden that we could ever have, and that's our sins. And so I pray that we would walk in joyful thanksgiving. Father, we thank you that you are, are at work in our body. We thank you that you have uh, brought Madeline through surgery this week. Lord, to pray that you would heal her little body, that you would give her strength, that you would um, be with Rachel as she cares for her. And I pray, that, um, I pray that we would receive good news from any results that are due to be back. Father, we thank you for the progress that Mr. Bragg has made, that he is, he is overcoming the pneumonia, that is, his organ function is increasing. And Lord, we, we thank you for answering these prayers. We pray that, that that progress would continue and that you would receive all the praise. Father, we pray for Rabina, Wolf, and Asset, that she's, she's made it through half of the chemotherapy that she's due, and, and that may be encouraging or discouraging to her. I don't know, but Father, I pray that you would, you would use this medicine and it would have its intended effect of killing this cancer. And Father, that you would use this means to heal her. Father, we pray for uh, Evangel Presbytery, and we ask that the work of beginning this new, this new presbytery would be blessed of you. Father, we know that as, as works begin, there are trials that come, and I pray that we would be faithful in those trials, that we would trust that you are at work in them to, to hone this work. And Father, we pray, I pray specifically for Sovereign King Church in Sellersburg, a uh, church plant of Evangel Presbytery. Pray for their pastor, Joseph Spurgeon. Pray that you would give him, you would give him strength in his ministry. I pray that he would be um, godly, that he would trust in you. Father, that he would, he would 
speak always of your grace and power. And Father, I pray that the church would be build up, built up to uh, your glory. Father, we, we pray as the apostle Paul prayed, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the, sa- in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? I pray that we would repent of our weak thoughts of you, Father. I, w- I pray that we would repent of our grumbling and complaining and our impatience with your schedule. I pray that we would repent of thinking that there are sins that are beyond cure, that there are temptations that we face that, that come that no one else, is, else faces, that we're unique. Father, forgive us for these selfish thoughts. Forgive us for denying your power. Pray that you would open our eyes and open our minds through the study of your word, of your greatness, and of your power toward us who believe. And Father, we pray together as the as Jesus taught his apostles. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us his body and his blood. His body was broken, his blood was shed so that we might have forgiveness of sins. And that's, that's, the, that's what else is there? That's the, the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Jesus, in our place, died, took our punishment for our sins, and And now we, by faith, can feast upon his body and blood and uh, remember his work. This is what the Apostle Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then the passage shifts to, the, to how we come to this table, the duties that we must ha- take When we come to this table, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So in other words, even in this meal right here, not the one 2,000 or so years ago then, in this meal here, there's danger. 
Right? If you don't like Jesus, don't eat his body and blood. If you don't need Jesus, don't eat his body and blood. If you think Jesus is whacked, this table will kill you. Okay? So don't come to this table. If you haven't been baptized, if you're not a member of a church that's watching over you and keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account, then just let it pass by. Let it pass by you. Take the tray, don't take something from it, and just let it go by. No shame in it. But come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Find nourishment for your soul, and then come to this table. Right? So that's what he's talking about. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that brings up another thing. There's another reason why you shouldn't come to this table. And that's, as, that's if you know of a sin you've committed that you love and will not repent of. If there's something that you just will not give up, you love it as much as you love Jesus, if not more then don't come to this table until you've repented. Just let these things go by, right? Let these things go by. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are dead. A number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, if we truly with spiritual eyes judged ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. We wouldn't come to this table in an unworthy manner and reap the judgment of God. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Right? God does that work in us and we do the work of repentance so that we're not condemned along with the world. And so... There's a lot of negative to this meal that's supposed to be a celebration, isn't there? Well, I've gotten past that, right? And now for those of you who can, in good conscience, come to the body and blood of Jesus, do so with the most joy of anything you do in your life. You're eating the body and blood of Jesus spiritually. You're being strengthened by him in order to walk in a manner worthy of him. You're proclaiming his death until he comes. You're shouting to the world that I'll have Jesus and Jesus is sufficient. It's all I need. I don't need all your vain philosophies. I don't need anything else. Just give me Jesus. And that's what you're doing when you come to this table. And so do so with joy, with great joy, if, if you pass the tests of earlier.